to Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast where we talk all things from the solo years and, of course, occasionally, well, maybe more than occasionally, uh, from the Beatles years as well. Uh, you may notice that things look a little different tonight. Uh, and uh, maybe judging from my background here, it isn't tonight. Uh, and instead, uh, and, and this is not a fake background either. This is my, my backyard. Um, we are actually uh, recording this because we have a very special guest joining us. And because of the, the time difference, um, we decided to record this in advance. So, uh, so if you're watching this on um, Monday night, uh, August 22nd, uh, we are uh, not live. Uh, but uh, we are going to be the the myself and my co-hosts are going to be in the comments when this premieres at the usual time, um, and so we'll be as as you know much as we can watching it with you, and uh, and you know we'll be commenting and everything. So feel free to uh, to leave comments, and of course, if you're watching this on the replay, keep leaving uh, comments, questions, and so forth. So. Uh, and so this is going to be a very special show for for many reasons. Um, so before uh, we get to that, let me introduce myself, my my friends and co-hosts, and our very special guest tonight. Um, my name is Kid O'Toole. I am the author of Songs We Were Singing, Guided Tours Through the Beatles' Lesser Known Tracks, Michael Jackson FAQ, All That's Left to Know About the King of Pop, and uh, I am the co-editor along with our good friend Ken Womack, of fandom in the Beatles, the act you've known for all these years. Uh, thank you, thank you for the support. Um, and so, uh, so uh, next up, we have the host of the very popular YouTube channel, Mean Mr. Mayo. He uh, does uh, has videos on everything from his adventures in collecting uh, Beatles uh, in solo vinyl memorabilia. Uh, his great adventures also at his local record store with a great cast of characters, uh, his shows, uh, show called Fab Gab and uh, a more than healthy dose of comedy. Great stuff. Um, <laughs> uh, Joe Mayo. Hello, Joe. Hi, Kit. Thank you for that uh, nice introduction. And hello, uh, Ken. Hello, Tom. And welcome, Owen. Hello. All right. Next up, he is the co-host of the also very popular 
videocast slash podcast two legs which is all about the paul mccartney years and uh, they are just incredibly busy in addition to uh doing their show they also have uh chats uh they also put up videos of their adventures in collecting uh mainly vinyl and uh, i mean they are just producing content like crazy uh and so there's always something new to find on their channel so say hello to tom and yadi hello tom hello kids joe ken good to see you guys and the special guest it's good to see you once again and uh, i'm sure we'll be seeing more of each other in the future <laughs> special you can, guest you can count on <laughs> And uh, and uh, next up, he is, of course, a mainstay in the Beatles community. Uh, he's been on the year for 40 years. Just uh, just amazing. Celebrating his 40th year. Yes. <laughs> I need to take a screenshot of, of that uh, later. Uh, <laughs> expression. Uh, he is, of course, the host of the syndicated uh, radio show, Every Little Thing, where he plays just that, Every Little Thing. Uh, from the Beatles and solo years, uh, rev usually revolving, no pun intended, around a single um, theme. And, uh, and it's always something very creative. Um, and uh, he is also the co-host of the extremely popular uh, podcast, Things We Said Today, as I always say, how popular? Just ask Peter Jackson. <laughs> and... <laughs> And as if that weren't enough, in addition to this show, he has a great uh, YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio, which just passed a thousand subscribers. Yes. So Yay. congratulations, Ken. Thank you to everyone subscribing to my channel and, of course, subscribers to this show. Indeed. Indeed. So welcome, Ken Michaels. Hello, Ken. Hey, Kit. Hey, Joe, Tom, and special guest. <laughs> and I should have yep. said special guest. Welcome, special guest. Yeah, that's all right. And so I think it's about time we reveal the special guest. Uh, really thrilled to have him. He's coming all the way from Ireland uh, for uh, for this show. We really appreciate it. Um, he is the author of this particular book right here, George Harrison in the 1970s. Books up, everybody. <laughs> Well, you, you, at least you know four of us have the book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he is also the author of You Two on Track, um, all about uh, the, of course, the music of uh, the band we also all know and love. Um, he uh, has also published uh, in a, on a variety of sites uh, and uh, magazines, uh, Record Collector, Culture Sonar, and uh, mm -hmm. hey, we're we're <laughs> culture sonar buddies. I published there as well. Uh, Digital fix and the playlist, and he's interviewed everyone from Brian May to Stuart Copeland and Lawrence Juber. Wow. Um, I'm I'm uh, turning green with jealousy right now. So, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Owen Lang. Owen, thank you for thank being you. on the show. <laughs> I, I take one slight umbrage. You forgot about the part where I said I wrote a piece for Far Up Magazine saying why Wings were a better band than the Beatles. Let's <laughs> let's get the boxing gloves on. Yeah, let's get started. Oh boy, ready to say that, Kit? I I you know I I was debating whether to do it or not. 
<laughs> so, you know, there were, there were some fans out there that would agree, I'll bet. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I guess I, I should have uh, I should have said that. No, but but, so uh, but it's all about Paul for a lot of people. You yes, know? it is. That's very true. That's very true. But <laughs> Owen, we are so thrilled to have you here tonight. And we are dying to, to talk about uh, talk about the book. Before we get to that, as always, let's talk about the news. Ken, what have you got for us? Okay. This is not as lengthy as most of my Beatle News guests. <laughs> People are saying, yay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we'll start with uh, actually the very sad news on the passing of John Eastman, who was Paul McCartney's brother-in-law and Linda McCartney's brother. Of course, we all know that towards the end of the Beatles, there was a big war that went on within the group where John, George, and Ringo now inclined to be their business manager and Paul wanted the Eastman family to represent the group. As it turns out, you know, John Eastman was a lot more to Paul McCartney than just handling uh, management. He was a really good friend and very close to Paul through the years. And Paul issued a statement. My dear brother-in-law, John Eastman has passed away. Having known each other for over 50 years, it is an extremely sad time for me and our family. John was a great man, one of the nicest and smartest people I have had, the good luck to have known in my life. Not only did he help me massively in my business dealings as my lawyer, but as a friend, he was hard to beat. His sense of humor always shone through in everything he did, and his devotion to his family was supreme. We had so many fun times together through the years, but when the time came to be serious, he was unbeatable. There is so much more that can be said of his incredible qualities but words can hardly describe his passion for life and our affection for this amazing man. He will be sorely missed, but always held dear in the hearts of those, uh, those of us who knew and loved him. See you, Johnny. Love, Paul. Johnny, 83. And uh, I will turn your attention. If you could uh, watch the most recent things we said today, because Alan Cousin wrote a really nice piece on Johnny Spin on our Facebook page, and he expanded on that, you know, how important John Eastman really was. When Paul had to resign with CBS Records, John Eastman was behind that. Right. Resigning with Capitol Records, John Eastman was there for anything in the business. John was there. And whereas you may always hear the name Lee Eastman, who, of course, the McCartney's had the greatest affection and respect for, John Eastman was the one who did most of the representing uh, for Paul through the years. And when it came time to trying to handle the Beatles there, Lee wanted John to do it because John was a younger guy, closer in age to the Beatles. So uh, really strong bond right there between Eastman's, of course, and the McCartney family. It's very sad to hear about that. Okay, uh, one other passing we'll talk about momentarily. Roger Freeman of Showbiz 411 is reporting that the new release of the DVD and Blu-ray for the Beatles documentary, Get Back, in terms of sales, has been undone. According to his stats, the DVD has sold almost 13,000 copies, while the Blu-ray has sold almost 32,000 copies. Total sales have come to just $1.6 million. Despite this being such a landmark documentary with rare, uh, with, with uh, glowing reviews, after having been shown on Disney Plus and Paul McCartney promoting it on his tour with the performance of I've Got a Feeling from the Rooftop concert with he and his band playing it live, 
the sales have been extremely disappointing. Even Ringo has promoted the release online by posting a photo of his toes with the DVD next to his toes. He's wearing sandals and all, but <laughs> that's why the sales <laughs> felt. <laughs> I don't know if that was a smart move on Ringo's part, but um, didn't he yeah. say something like "come together" or something like oh. that? <laughs> oh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that this didn't do that well. I mean, it did, it does, but it doesn't because a lot of people said, yeah. "Oh, I'm not going to buy this. I'm just going to watch it on." Uh, he left it on the streaming. I can get it on streaming, and there's no bonus feature. Or, or extra footage or anything on it. So why buy it? A lot of people said, you know, um, and I'll wait until something comes out, they said, you, you know, that has extras on it. Well, you know, that's not going to happen if you don't support this one, because if, if they feel there are no, there's no interest out there, Disney is not known, you know, for wanting to put out extended cuts, director's cuts, or extra footage that they have a reputation for not wanting to do that. Right. So but the then, fans didn't show enough interest. Right. But then, you know, in a way, though, we're we're also telling them, look, we're not going to continue this double dipping thing that, you know, a lot of companies like to do. Right. They'll put out the bare bones. And then if it does do well, then, you know, a year down the line, we'll put the, we'll put out a special edition. Why put out that special edition first? You know, and that's where you're going to get, you know, people excited about it. I mean, Peter Jackson said there's you know, five to six hours still of, of, of footage that could have been added to what we've already got. You know, that's your selling point right there. Right. That, putting out the bare bones release is not your selling point. I mean, I, and then obviously, again, it, this is proving that the not everything that the Beatles is going to, the Beatles do is going to be successful, right? We have to have something else to, to lure the, the fans to, to buy this, you know, documentary that we all love We've already seen it though, but in in terms, let's let's get something special so to entice us to buy it. Hey, you want to say something, Kit? Oh no, just that. Yeah, I I think this is ridiculous that they're not um, you know releasing the additional footage. I mean, Peter Jackson has obviously wanted this right. for for some time. I mean, you know, and he's got he's like I've got five hours ready to go. I mean, you know, and, and the fans, I mean, Disney saying that, you know, oh, there's no market for it. Really? Because, I mean, everybody on Facebook has been talking about it. I mean, you know, of course people want it. I well, mean, they're not know, going to think that now. That's what bothers me. That's how they interpret it. They interpret yeah. that there's no interest. And uh, it doesn't help any uh, leaving the documentary up there to stream on Disney Plus. should have been yanked. Uh, when this come when when this release came out, I yep. think it's also it's also a matter. It was a foolish marketing thing. Really makes the Beatles look bad, like they got a black eye. Like, and this is one of the most exciting projects ever. Exactly, exactly. Owen, what do you what do you think? Well, I, I I think you can trust Peter Jackson. If there's one person you can trust, it's Peter Jackson. Except when it comes to Lord of the Rings, keep it out of his hands. <laughs> And when it comes to Dead Alive, sorry, Peter and King, that's, that's just me. That's just me. I just wanted to say that, you know, whenever there's a new release that's out, Beatles or Solo, I'm there getting it the day of its release. 
this is the first time in a long time I could ever remember that it didn't matter as much to me. I wasn't that excited about it because there's no bonus material. And also, there's a local record store that I go to periodically because I want to support local stores. I buy everything on Amazon. But um, I went to my local record store and they took, they only had the Blu-ray. They were never sent the DVD. And they were told that it was only sent to major chains like Target. So this has really been mishandled yeah. in a number of ways, it looks like. And yeah. really, uh, it just seems like when Peter was adding more material, Apple had no problem with it. The Beatles had no problem with it. It's all really comes down to Disney, I think. Uh, it's a shame that we didn't have, even if there was 10 minutes more, I would have yeah. been you know anything to give me an incentive to go and get it yeah but yeah it's your fault ken <laughs> my fault <laughs> disney's fault no yeah. no um yeah it's it, it just a shame i just hope this doesn't bode badly for interest in future beatles releases as well because that's sometimes the way companies think yeah, there's no audience out there. They think, but it, everybody's yeah. seen it on Disney Plus, maybe more than once. And this was nothing extra, like you said, to to purchase right away. You they know? never think it's the company doing the bad job. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny too because didn't uh, during that that hot streak that the Beatles were in in the late '90s and, and then into the 2000s, um, you know, when Let It Be Naked was released, that wasn't a big, you know, a big seller. No. Uh, either, you know, so hmm. but yet they yeah. still followed it up with other right, exactly. Well, right, like the Beatles' Love was a big success, big success, right? Absolutely. All right, in other news, as you all know, I'm sure McCartney one, two, and three, the box set is being offered in three limited edition formats a three LP colored vinyl, three LP black vinyl, and three CD version. Each includes three special photo prints with notes from Paul about the album, and all three albums are available to stream in Dolby Atmos, a way to hear the music in 3D. It was mixed by Giles Martin and Steve Orchard and mastered by Emily Lazar, and you can listen uh, to the Dolby Atmos on Amazon Music HD, Apple Music, and Tidal. Just released, if I can get it out here, it's a brand new book called Top of the Mountain, the Beatles at Shea Stadium, 1965, by Laurie Jacobson. All about that historic concert. That's my next book to read after I finish reading this book I'm reading on Yoko Ono. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope to be interviewing the author soon on my channel. Um, I did say before there was another passing that I wanted to note, and that would be a member of one of the most successful songwriting teams of the 60s, and that's Lamont Dozier, uh, the famous Holland Dozier Holland team. They wrote many classic songs for Motown, including an unbelievable 10 songs for the Supremes that all went to number one. Wow. And the Beatles, of course, were major fans of Motown artists. Ringo did cover the Supremes hit, Where Did Our Love Go, on his Bad Boy album. Um, Leonard and McCartney were the most successful songwriters of the 60s, but there's no doubt Holland Dozier Holland would be right up there too. Very big loss right there. I know what a big fan we all are of 60s music and soul music and Lamont Doge, major, major name. Um, we send out happy birthday wishes a couple of days ago on Friday to Billy J. Kramer, who turned 79 years old. 
And we have a reminder of some release dates. Julian Lennon's new album, Jude, comes out September the 9th. Ringo Starr's new EP, EP3, will be released on September 16th, the week after Julian. And that's well, on- Excuse me, Ken, which, which, which EP is this from Ringo? Which, which one is it? It's EP3. Oh, it's the third. Okay, I got it. I got it. It's hard to keep track of it all, right? Yeah. Thank. Sorry to interrupt. I just wasn't sure. All right. (laughs) Hey, he could have pulled a traveling Wilburys volume. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. That'll be on CD and digitally. Um, and we hope, as the rumors we've been told, John and Yoko sometime in New York City. The archival box set should be coming out on John's birthday, October the 9th, and hopefully a Beatles revolver box set sometime in October. Ken, if we don't hear anything by by mid-September for this uh, sometime in New York City, then I'm thinking they're not going to do it this year. Um, you know, obviously, do you, you, we've been normally getting about a six-week advance notice. That's true. Uh, you know, for, for pre-orders. Um, we are, what, almost uh, now uh, a month away uh, from, from John's birthday. Uh, maybe, uh, what, uh, maybe even th- we're pretty much right in that six-week range. Um, so if we don't hear something soon, I'm, sa- I'm guessing they're going to scrap it for this year. Well, well, we'll see. You know, you always tend to think anniversaries. Right. And in the United States, sometime in New York City, was a June release. So mm-hmm. we, we passed that. But they could always be thinking John's birthday or December. Yep. Or the last quarter of the year for Christmas or the holidays. So we shall see. But uh, that's all the news I have for you this time. Um, I I do want to say, though, I I did get that McCartney 123 vinyl set and uh, I did play the the McCartney. It's it's a very nice, quiet sounding uh, record and uh, loved it. Sounded great. It is weird, though, because the McCartney 2 and the McCartney 3 are white vinyl. Okay, but McCartney is a clear smoky vinyl, <laughs> which <laughs> kind of in a way made no sense yeah. that you know two out of three are white with one being a smoky uh clear vinyl, but uh but hey, you know it's 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 a nice set. You know? Maybe the ne- maybe the next box set will be different because I was right. thinking of that. I was gonna say it when we were doing the news and you were saying how you know they should release it the first time, not make us go right. back for different versions of the explorer right. edition <laughs> right. the suitcase edition. I was right. thinking of that, but uh, mm-hmm. hey, I, I got it in there. Yep. Zing. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> one, two, McCartney, one, two, three, Bob. And that's it. All right. All right. Thank you, Ken, uh, for all the news. Um, so uh, let's talk about uh, this, uh, this book. <laughs> no one's ready to go. Uh, and I have it. It's right here. Well, <laughs> and uh, really excited. Uh, we've been really excited to talk about this. Uh, George Harrison in the 1970s. And uh, before we get to, you know, specific questions about the book, I thought um, it'd be, you know, good to first, you know, talk about the book generally uh, for those, you know, who haven't had a chance to read it yet, um, like uh, we have. So, um, Owen, you know, there are so many, uh, well, maybe not quite as many books about George Harrison as, as say, Paul and, and others, but what, you know, what gave you the idea um, to write about 
this particular uh, subject, you know, this particular era um, in George's life. Oh, mute, mute, unmute. Unmute. There you go. Excellent. Well, a man came down on a flaming pie and he said, Take this, brother, and you'll have us in the 1970s. No, uh, more honestly, the Sonic Bond series that I write for has a decade series and They've had ones on Genesis and Meridian, whether in the 70s or 80s. And as I said on Tom Hunyadi's podcast, uh, which is which is a very good podcast, Two Legs, I'm just giving you a bit of promo. <laughs> uh, as, I, uh, as I said, I was on an episode with Adrian Sinclair, and it was in the conversation I had with Adrian Sinclair where I said to him, I was thinking of writing one about a solo Beatle, and he said, George. And I'd written some pieces, like a piece on Dark Horse for Culture Sonar and a piece on Extra Texture for We Are Print. And I just, I'd written pieces, I'd written a piece on All Things Must Pass for uh, Beatle Fan Magazine. And I felt like, well, I've already written about three or four of them. I'm basically halfway there. I have a lot of the research done. This will only take me a few months. Ultimately, it took me a year. <laughs> <laughs> That's always the way, you know, you think, oh, I can, I can write this book and you know, yeah. no time, and then it just snowballs, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting how, you know, this is such a, a crucial decade in George's life, uh, both professionally and, and personally. And, you know, you really managed to, you know, condense it in, in uh, you know, in this volume. I mean, how did you go about doing that? I mean, there's there's so much to cover here. How did you go about narrowing your focus? One word, count, count, count line, or a word count. Sorry, word count. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a word count I had to hit, so that I obviously I could have written. There is, as you say, a lot more I could have written, and right. uh, but uh, the the challenge was to write a compact book, and uh, obviously some bits are more detailed than other parts. I mean, from seventy six to seventy nine, George really lives in his garden and just you know has a which must have been very, very fruitful for him as a person. But that was, that, 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 yes, okay, the book does get a bit slimmer in that end. But, uh, but yeah, stuff like Dark Horse, there was just, that could be a book unto itself, just, you know, the tour, the, the album, the, uh, the chaos, the turbulence, the resurrection. And then, and then he comes out with a beautiful album, like Extra Texture. So there's a happy ending. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it just seems like, you know, there's there were these, you know, turbulent periods. And then, as you said, these these happy endings. And it's just amazing how, you know, you were able to, you know, cover it <laughs> in, in such a, you know, a, a, you know, succinct, but still, you know, pretty detailed uh, way. So, uh, you know, I, that's a you know, really a, a lot of focus. So um, was there anything as, as you've been, as you went through the research and all, was there anything that really surprised you as you were going through this? Uh, what surprised me was just how busy he was, especially from like 1970 to 1974. He doesn't stop producing, writing, recording. There's something for Ringo. There's, there's the Dark Horse, the, the Dark Horse, artist there's there's the label he wants to found there's 
uh, he's writing songs for he's he's producing a, an album for Ravi Shankar in 1974. No wonder he ended up having a near nervous breakdown. He should have taken a break for himself. Um, <laughs> for for a man who you know everyone pencils as you know the quiet one, he was like he was extraordinarily uh, extraordinarily prolific. Absolutely, and um, and one thing that uh, you you know seems to be a, a theme um, in in your book, I notice is you know identity is is trying you know a man trying to find you know struggling with his past identity and and trying to you know establish his his you know his own identity is his present identity you know struggling between past and present was that. You know, is that something as you started this book, was that something you expected to to emerge or or was that something as you were writing it that you thought, ah, this is, you know, this is my this is the hook. This is it. Um, I expected it in his life. I was surprised how much of it appeared in his album, which is might be why I think 33 is his weakest because the least it's the one that has the least amount of identity. Everything, every uh, every one of his albums can be summed up as. So all things must pass is is, is his, you know uh, it's his proclamation of songwriting after the Beatles extra textures rising up from the dark horse dark horses you know the breakdown of his marriage the George Harrison album is him as a father living in the material world is very much him in spiritual extremists I can't some I can't really summarize thirty three and a third in in such a neat little package which is why it probably doesn't satisfy me as the other five albums do. Okay, we'll get to that later, but we'll move on. <laughs> oh, we will. We'll get to that, oh, but uh, but no, it, uh, you know, and that's another thing about this book is that it w really does inspire conversation, you know, uh, about the various albums. So and and you know, and that's something that uh, you know I think readers will uh, will enjoy. But uh, but let me pass it on to uh, you know to now that we've got the kind of I think people get the general idea of, of what uh, the book is about. So uh, let me uh, pass it on. Uh, let me pass it on, uh, Joe, because you, I know, you know, <laughs> these these two others uh, have have interviewed you before, uh, but uh, but Joe has not. So, uh, so yeah, Joe. I had a feeling I'd be first. I had a feeling <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> yeah. What did you want to? What did you want to? No, kid. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Well, set me up. What? Oh no, no. Just uh, I'm just throwing it out to you guys. Uh, you know, I'm just gonna go around and and you know, if you have yeah. a few questions you want to uh, throw out and about, um, uh, about. Well, I don't. I'm not really that familiar with uh, Owen's work. I I, I just uh, read this and it was a pretty quick read. You know, because it's not a very thick book. And Owen, I listened to you on some of Ken Michaels. Uh, podcast on his YouTube channel, the Ken, Ken Michaels Radio. And the first thing that I remember listening to, if I can go off on a tangent here a little bit, was uh, the John Lennon Walls and Bridges discussion, which I was happy to see somebody give that, you know, the good support because I, I like that album. I know Kit likes that album too. Yeah. And I, and, you know, when everyone has the same kind of opinions, it gets dull, right? And everything's hunky-dory when you agree with somebody, so there were no issues there. Although I would take uh, issue with just the idea that, you know, in my opinion, you know, uh, I wouldn't put it ahead of the Imagine album, you know, as you 
to do. But uh, that's the first experience I had uh, with you, you know, as far as like watching the show, listening to what you had to say. Uh, but I think in this book, what I'm noticing is, is it fair to say a provocative style in some cases? Uh, I, I think you, you wear that like an on, a badge of honor in a way. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, do, I do like my Serge Gainsbourg. Um, I, I wouldn't say I deliberately provocateur, but I, I do. I, I was told I did actually consult Tom Hanyadi. I said, "Will people be upset if I say 33 and the third is not a good album?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "Okay, I'm writing." The book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have notes that I've taken, uh, a lot of notes, but I, you know, they're basically just differing of opinions, really. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have much to ask about, like why you wrote the book, just things that I would disagree with, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how if you want to do hit like one thing subject at a time or just in general let me know um i i mean however you know i mean is there anything in particular just that you know jumped out at you i mean well, let's any... start out with that texture let's get it right out let's, let's, let's get it right all out. right let's, the elephant in the, uh, let's <laughs> go right to the elephant in the room all i right, want to make okay. sure my audio is working i want to make sure i don't have any technical mishaps because we we prepared a show here on talk more talk for extra texture and i was dying to do that because i can't stand that album if i could be blunt i think it's it's george's worst album or it's tough gontrapo and for me and uh, extra texture so but that day that we went to do the show we were getting ready to go live and my audio could not it was and amazing. I had to bow out of that show. So George. here's the chance. Yeah, so it was George. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> so said it was George. <laughs> I, th- I said, I think George from beyond is like helping. So just bear with me. No, but all kidding aside, um, I, I know you really like that album a lot. I think it's one of your, maybe your second favorite of George's album, second best, uh, next no, all things favorite. must pass. Oh, it's number one. Oh, number yeah, one, no. even. I thought it was it was two. Even more so. That makes it even more delicious. Okay. Well, for <laughs> me, for me, I mean, I, well, I want to ask, talk to you about it. But for me, I happen to think, I didn't get a chance to say this before, so let me do it for the record. I, I got some words. Just, I find it kind of dreary. Kind of find it dirge-like. I think the songs are all very similar. Kind of boring, dull, you know, repetitive. I think George's vocals are among his worst. Warbly, whiny, the production is is weak. Uh, you know, the thing is, I do like the first three songs quite a bit, though. I do like the song "You." You know, it's the only real up temp up tempo number, really. Uh, I love "Answers at the End," and I love this guitar. Can't keep from crying after that. I have I've tried many times. For me, it's just not my thing, and I just find a lot of disagreements. Uh, one of the things you said was uh, the song, and Tom's going to appreciate this. Uh, Can't stop thinking about you. Uh, that particular song you, you were saying in the book, uh, it's you can only imagine, like when it first came out. I'm paraphrasing here, like how wonderful and exciting it must have been to hear this vibrant and virile song. And I'm thinking to myself, "Can't stop thinking about you." <laughs> No, you did. You did. So that's not really the first thing I have to talk. About. It's just not my bag. And I, uh, I'm, I'm, can you elaborate for people that don't know 
what you mm-hmm. really enjoy so much about it that I'm missing and other people are missing. I mean, yeah, I read that, it, but that was a question I had actually is, is, you know, convince yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Me. Let, let me know, because it's just, I'm just it's going to take a lot to convince me, but everything's subjective. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I don't I, I'm if, if I can't convince you, I can't convince you. All I can do is write about it. And what I hear is this well, an, incre- an incredible musician putting his life and soul into his instruments as opposed to into his lyric craft, as he had on the first three albums. So it's a very it's a great sonic achievement. I mean, the, as you mentioned, the first three tracks, I mean, this guitar is just rich with sound and atmosphere. Can't stop thinking about you is, you know, has a beautiful backing. Uh, you and a little bit more of you. There, there's just frothiness and great saxophone and great brass. And then and then we have a nice kind of jaunty vaudeville number at the end with uh, with a member of the dong, the Bonzo Dog Doodles band actually yeah. doing a sort of a, a semi a semi kind of kitsch rap on it. So I mean, it's an album of textures. It's an album of contradiction. It's much more buoyant than the than either Material World or Dark Horse, which were fairly uh what is the word they the, I, so I wouldn't say they were dark artists but they were uncompromising records whereas this one is more accessible it veers more towards pop and it's just a great expression of sound ah well i gotta think about that for a while i'll do i'll watch the playback of this to see if, if I, I play it a few dozen times the, the playback here to see if i can because for me uh, i don't know uh, conversely i know you're not a big fan of cloud nine which i think is one of the greatest things george ever did second best after all things must pass um i think george's voice there is in top notch he's never sounded better and indeed i'd say the same for the traveling Woolberries work that he did he never sounded better uh it's commercial now i mean it's more commercial do you um, maybe not appreciate maybe the commercial stuff from George as much? Would, would that be fair to say? Is or is that not fair? No, I, I would say I don't enjoy commercial stuff. I mean, what is life? Is probably is one of his best songs. That's very commercial. Give me, give me love. Is so commercial. I think it's when I feel he's doing commercial for the sake of commercial. So like we've got a got my mindset on you, which is you know them trying to jump on. La 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 rambla ba, 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 ba. and then listening to the to the charts for a guy who's never enjoyed listening to the charts or trying to, to chase the hits. He's he's holding himself up in this this gothic mansion in Friars Park. I might have got the terminology for gothic. Uh, this huge house in, in 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 it's surrounded by by pastoral green and and you know he loves his Dylan, he loves his Indian music, and suddenly he's trying to make this big ultra eighties record. And some of it, to me, sounds just like a guy trying to speak ultra eighties. Like uh, "Devil's Radio" is a song I can't stand. Uh, oh, uh, Ken, Ken, I know. My dog's laughing. Is Joel looking really wounded? I love that song. I'm not laughing at you. I know. I know. Uh, just for one day, I find quite schmaltzy. Uh, Record the Hesperus, I think is a good song, but the vocals a bit weedy. I don't think George is quite committed enough. But it does have Fish on the Sand, which is a lovely, lovely song. I really like that song. Hmm. <laughs> Record the Hesperus is probably my least favorite track on 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 Cloud Nine, but boy, the others I love. That, that's what it takes, uh, you know, someplace else. Yeah. 
Uh, I could go on and on. Devil's Radio, as as we said, I think that's a great rocker. You don't get George rocking too much, you know. So that's why I like it. But again, this is all individual. It's all you know subjective. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yep. Yep. And and was that you know was that part of when you were writing the book was that part of like you know you want to do have dialogue you know engage with the reader of like you know you know expressing your your views and inviting the reader to you know kind of say what's your opinion um you know or or was it just wanting to express your views and and you know but kind of inspire did, did you want to inspire yeah. this kind of dialogue i obviously any opinion is an opinion i read the peter doggett and uh, you never give me your money book yeah. And I wonder, are we listening to the same album when he's describing Ram as, as you know, weaker, as inferior to George and John's work from the same time? And yeah. he describes Venus and Mars as lightweight. Yeah. Uh, but I still think it's a beautifully written book. I think it's an, an incredible book. You never give me your money. Some of the E. MacDonald's opinions yeah. I don't agree with, but it's still right. a fantastic book. Sure. I don't expect everyone to. I don't expect everyone to agree with my that. I'm, I, I'm not. I'm not. You know, a haughty <laughs> reverend saying this. This is how you should think. It's. It's well, our. No, no. no. Yeah. No, but I got no. I, one thing I wanted to throw in before I forget, because I have it outlined in the book. Now I'm going to throw some John Lennon stuff here and there, because John Lennon gets mm. pretty skewered yeah. in a few places in here, which is not unusual <laughs> these days. I have a yeah. thing about that. But it's uh, been a while, Joe. It's just not these days. <laughs> so that's another story. Thank you. It's been a while. <laughs> Uh, what I hear, see, the thing is, everybody's got their opinion, and you, you know, extra texture is, um, you know, your favorite George album. But what, I just can't help mentioning this. When you, uh, again, it's your opinion, but when you say something like uh, about John's uh, early albums, you said, uh, uh, I guess, what is it, packing much of the rebellion that was heard on Lennon's excellent Plastic Ono band, give mm -hmm. me some truth. Was ultimately wasted among a series of ill-thought-out compositions, which earmarked the first of a trilogy of Lennon albums that did little to live up to his legend. If, if Imagine doesn't live up to Lennon's legend, I don't know what does. Okay. Care to uh, expand on that? Um, yeah, I'm going to get a kicking for this. Actually, if you go onto <laughs> Wikipedia right now, you will actually see that I'm referenced in one of my articles, and it starts off, less impressed, only a far-out magazine, and it continues into that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, you got cited Wikipedia. I have two. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We've made uh, it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the Imagine album, it's a bit schmaltzy in place. It's schizophrenic, you know, there's anger, there's schmaltz. It doesn't have, and when it's angry, besides give me some truth, I think the anger is misjudged. We have that really, really horrible song, How Do You Sleep, which is which is like, I faked every orgasm, Paul. You never satisfied me. <laughs> well, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant, in my opinion, as a put-down song, which is what yeah. it is, like Dylan's Positively Fourth Street is dripping with venom. That's what it's supposed to do as a put-down song, you know. Uh, whether you, people like the subject matter or not is another story, I think. But. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I think uh, the, the Dylan song you, uh, you named, like, like George Harrison's Wawa, they're good songs. They're laced with melody. With, with How Do You Sleep, it is just John, you know, putting a guitar to, you know, how am I feeling today? I'm going to make Paul feel like crap. 
Yeah, I got gotcha. you. One last quote because I want somebody else to, to yeah. take a turn. But I got. Okay. I want. I want to say, back to Cloud Nine. The way it's worded, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. I look. I, I say what's on my mind a lot on my channel yeah. that I do. I think a lot of my viewers they like that, you know. Yeah. But the way this is written, so I, I can appreciate that. But the way this is written about Cloud Nine, it says, "But there was no denying the fact, no denying the fact <laughs> that Cloud Nine was the slightest album." Of his career, that's, wow! <laughs> okay. Hey, yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I can see people saying, "Who does this guy think he is? He's not even thirty, and he can say what is George's worst album." <laughs> well, yeah, you'll be there soon, though, thirty. You'll be there before you know it. <laughs> yeah. Um, what? I don't know. I mean, it's a it's a bit of it's a bit of flower, a bit of narrative. Uh, it was it, it, I wrote it to suit the narrative to interweave, and yeah. But when you read it out like that, it is a bit strong. There's no denying it's <laughs> the fact. fact. We have the scientific charts. It is not as good as his other work. Yeah. No, but you know, like I said, that to me that was part of the fun of reading the book. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, okay, it, got, it got my 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 hair up a little bit. Of course, things that I agreed with you on. Yeah, living in the material world, one hundred percent. You know, I agree, mm -hmm. you know, there's mm -hmm. no all things must pass. I agree. You know, uh, dark yeah. horse. I agree with you. Thirty three and a third oh, okay. didn't agree, and I'll let somebody else, somebody <laughs> else handle thirty three and a third. You know, that's how it is, isn't it? Or doesn't it seem like that? You know, if mm -hmm. it's somebody, oh yeah, he's oh this guy, he, oh he's right on this guy. Well, he's brilliant, this guy. Yeah, wait mm -hmm. a minute. What's he saying here? <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, Thank you. Yeah. Well, and that well, and that's why I was asking about, you know, engaging with the reader, because when I when I wrote Michael Jackson FAQ, I did do a bit mm -hmm. of that in, in that book. Yeah. And and I was hoping that it would inspire a dialogue uh, with the reader. You know, I was hoping, you know, yeah. somebody would say, you know, what is she talking about that that was his best album? What about, you know? Because, yeah, you want yeah. people to, you know, and that's part of the fun of being a fan, you know, yeah, is, yeah. is debating and being like, you know, yeah. no, is this, you know, you think that's his best yeah. album? You know, that's that's part of what's fun about being a fan. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, Jason Carty from Nothing Is Real gave me a new opinion. I always thought Paul McCartney's press song was awful. He's like, no, Owen, it's about sex. It's, it's Paul and Linda having sex. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. oh, and I also count me, Owen, count me as somebody else along with Tom, I believe, and I think you can, uh, who likes the song Spies Like Us. Yes. I do like that. I, you, can put, you can put me in the club. Okay. As a fan. I'm, no, I'm, I'm with you, Owen, on that one. I'm not a big fan of that song. It's awful. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not a huge fan of that that song. I'll, I'll, I'll stand with you there, uh, Owen, absolutely. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's see, Tom. How about you? Let's. Uh, Hi, Tom. You. Hello, Owen. <laughs> Hi, Tom. Good to see you, Chop. It's uh, it's, it's uh, I listen. It, I I appreciate uh, you know, opinions, and I appreciate you know, again, you younger, even people people younger than me, because we tend to look at it a little differently with somebody yeah. than with people that actually got to you know visit us, you know. At real time, you know, mm. so I mean, I do, you know, at times appreciate different opinions than just the same old, same old, but uh, yeah. but um, let's let's get a little too 
a little bit into his early career, um, you know, the All Things Must Pass. I mean, one of my favorite songs on here, Run of the Mill. And I like kind of what you read here, and hopefully you can a little elaborate it on a little bit more. But uh, you write here, uh, more to Run of the Mill than throwing digs at McCartney. The lyric confronts the changes that were surrounding Harrison and challenges him to accept the direction the world was presenting to him. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what, you know, these, these changes and challenges that were going on in, in, in early Harrison's career that people that, you know, yeah. my younger fans of Harrison might can maybe get an idea more of what you're, what you're trying to say here. Well, I think, I think that song just shows how heartbroken he was by the Beatles breakup because he's often, you read the crap everywhere that, Oh, George was the only one who was happy to, he was as devastated as anyone was by the breakup of the Beatles. It was, you know, he, he'd known John and Paul all his life and suddenly they weren't in his life anymore. And it was a horrendous time. And it's that those lines like, I won't carry the lame for you. And and he says in his book, I mean, mine, a lot of it was about, you know, all the chaos in Apple. But 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 that opening line, everyone has choice. Yeah, where to or not to raise their voices. Yeah. And it's funny that he writes that too, because when you see you know, footage or, or even with the good get back when there was a lot of, you know, confrontations, no one was raising their voices, you know, so I'm yeah. just like, you know, kind of confused that when, you know, when, when the stuff, I'm, listen, I'm, I'm sure there was behind the scenes fights yeah. and stuff like that, but oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, again, I think it's a wonderfully written song and, and, you know, kind of mm. like the digging with, you know, with the Paul thing where, you know, you know sue, sue Me, Sue You Blues is kind of, you know, directed towards that. And then also yeah. kind of like, you know, uh, putting his phone number at the end of Miss Odell, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, making fun of the fan club with the Jim Keltner type thing. It just seems like he's yeah. always kind of like, you know, digging at Paul any chance that he, that he, that he could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had, a, they had a weirdly complicated relationship, didn't they? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they ever really got, got it together until George's death, sadly. Even there were even frictions during the Free as a Bird recordings. Right. Yeah. How does putting Paul's phone number at the end of uh, Miss Odell dig at Paul? I, I just think it's it's kind of disrespectful in a way. You know, I mean, well, do you think Paul wants to get uh, bombarded with phone, you know, with phone calls? <laughs> even John didn't do that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's that's listen. I mean, he's a he's a high pro, profile figure and. You know, and someone's put, you know, I mean, listen, if, if I made the mistake once of doing this as because as, as a boss at, at work, I, I gave an employee somebody's phone number and turns out yeah. it wasn't the best, I, the best thing I ever did in my life. You know what I mean? So in, in a way, I, I think it's I, I think it's just a small dig, uh, you know, at him. Uh, you know, why would he, why would he do it to begin with? I mean, why, well, why would you do something like that if you didn't mean it as, as something, as some kind of dig at him, you know? I don't yeah. know. You're reading too much. Into I, it. Maybe. Also, at that, maybe. Time, at that yeah. time, that might not have been his phone number anymore. That was his old childhood phone. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I think what I, what I do think is I do think George probably enjoyed the fact that Paul didn't, didn't dig the Ruffles movie. I suspect that put a smile on his face. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, no sense of humor. No sense yeah. of humor. Uh, yeah. you, you wrote here, Spectre encouraged uh, Harrison to push himself as a vocalist. Let's talk about it. 
are, are you a fan of, of him as a vocalist? I, I um, you know, some people, you know, argue that, you know, he was probably the weakest uh, of the, of the, you know, the main three writers. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, obviously yeah. we have Dark Horse, you know, and we got, we got Joe st- was singing, uh, can't stop thinking about you, <laughs> you know, uh, talk to, talk about uh, George as a vocalist. What are your thoughts? No, I, I would agree. Um, I, I, I would put him up there with Graham Goulbin of 10CC. I think, I mean, a, a, very, a fantastic backing vocalist. When I interviewed Lol Cream, he said he made that point about Graham Goulbin, that Graham was always there with the notes as a backing vocalist. He always knew what hit notes to hit and could hit melody quite well. But uh, he was limited in the way that, in a way that John and Paul seemingly weren't. John and Paul could literally sing anything and could make it their own and make it and sell it. Uh, George was a bit more limited in that regard. But I mean, I mean, you listen to Hear Me Lord and he's singing from the bottom of his gut on the old thing. I think I think that is up there with one of his best, one of his best, uh, best vocals. Uh, Spectre did encourage him during the making of the album. Many of his notes saying we can do better. We can we, we, we can we can keep pushing. I think I think there's something here. And Spectre probably gave him the encouragement that perhaps George Martin never quite gave George. I know, I know in retrospectively, Phil Spectre has turned out to be quite a horrible human being. And if he's in, if he's in, if I hope, if there's a hell, I hope he's in it. But, uh, uh, but there's no doubt that he, he was an incredible, incredible producer. And it's, and on this occasion, they produced an outstanding work together. I think, I think Harrison worked better with Spectre than, than John Lennon did, as we can see on songs like How. Really? Well, there is another one of your famous uh, opinions. <laughs> um, uh, something that I, I kind of don't necessarily agree with you on here is um, listening to, um, this is referring to uh, the concert for Bangladesh, um, listening mm. to the Sitar Suite in 2021, oh, yeah. It holds up exceptionally well, offering the album time, uh, timelessness and turbocharged rock numbers did not. Best of all, it spoke wonders about the, the power of Shankar's presence over Harrison, that he granted Shankar so much time and leeway on stage. Um, so you're, you're pretty much just saying that you, you think that uh, Shankar's performance stands up more than what the, the rest of the show had to offer. Yeah, well, I, 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 I mean that that of course is an uh, is an opinion of mine. I, I, I think that is the 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 performance of the night. But what I was trying to say there was, the rockers were were so endemmed in the nineteen seventies. It couldn't have been any other decade. They couldn't be eighties rockers. They're not nineteen sixties rockers. They're you know barreling, drum heavy, bravado driven, like wah wah or or don't come easy all these big you know anthemic chorus heavy rockers so those are all dated to the 70s the indian sitar suites could be any decade right that's uh, what, that, that's basically what i was trying to say there i thought bob dylan stole the show okay <laughs> you know it's funny because you know he got you know he was getting shankar was getting all this love you know monterey pop mm. uh bangladesh yeah. and then comes the 74 tour and yeah. you know and then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a few short years later, all of a sudden, you know, nobody wants anything to do with him. And, you yeah. know, he's regarded as one of the great, you know, one of the great world music uh, leaders. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I would, I, one of my sad thing is when we first moved to Arizona in 2010, he, he was, you know, on tour and we bought tickets to see him. And I was just yeah. like, oh, I can't wait. 
the day of he announced that he was sick and oh, <laughs> the, the 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 show the show and he didn't he didn't do any more shows after that not, oh, not no. long after he, he passed but i really wish i would have had a chance to see him live but um i, I do think he's an amazing artist i i do think that that mm. the rest of those numbers stand up more than what maybe you you, you think but um but yeah i mean i think he gives amazing performances and i just feel bad that you know over time you know only maybe world music lovers will appreciate his stuff yeah. now and not as much you know as, as maybe yeah. they should yeah i mean i mean i think george called him the greatest musician in the world and there's a reason for that mm. yeah gotcha. mm. um you know and then getting to the the 74 tour um you know do you feel that same way with you know, with with the, the the quality of the musicians and 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 the numbers that he did. I mean, do you think it? You know, you know, take his voice out of it. You know, because yeah. we we know his voice was probably the down downfall of the of the tour. But I mean, do you think you know changing lyrics or or the song choices might not have been the best decisions uh, for that tour? No, I think the tour was fantastic. I think the the choice of continent was the problem. He should have done it in Europe, not in America, because I'm I'm just I'm going to be very careful how to say this, knowing that all four of my co-hosts or the my all my uh, uh, my all my hosts are from America, so I have to be very careful saying this. But in seventies, Europe was a bit more liberal in terms of, of music than I think America was. I think in America they wanted the hits, they wanted it to be a bit more jukebox thing, a stadium thing. I think if George had gone across to like Munich, Paris. London, yada yada, bringing you know, bring a, a ragtag of Indian and and American musicians, bringing this kind of great collage of music. That I think would have gone down a huge hit all across Europe around the countercultural scene, but it just was the wrong continent. And but of course, the big bucks are in the U.S. Right, right. Yeah. So um, I think it sounds fantastic. I mean, okay, yeah, I can see why he was annoying people. He might have been stirring a bit. Although I like to stir a bit, as as has been pointed out in this show, <laughs> he may even stir. He may have been stirring a bit with you know in in his life. I love him more, or whatever he's saying, or uh, or the way he he changed something. But it's his prerogative, and I mean, he he didn't want to do what what, what Paul McCartney wanted to do, which was you know to to slavishly treat the Beatles as you know the emblems of the nineteen sixties. He was moving on with his life and with his art, and and why not? Yeah, which which kind of in a way surprises me when you look back that he that he did even include any Beatles songs in there if he wants to separate himself that you know that badly from you know from you know the 60s and, and the Beatles why do anything at all when you have you know such a you know a wealth of, of music I mean you know not all you know top 20 hits obviously but uh, at least you know songs that people are going to know at that point in time I mean he was still selling his, his albums were still selling fairly well uh, you know, even yeah. though Dark Horse didn't do as well as uh, Living in the yeah. Material World and, and All Things Must Pass, obviously. But, uh, yeah. That's it for now, Ken. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, how much can you get? Can we bear? Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, this is a fascinating conversation. Um, what you just said, Owen, about how George, is, George should have taken his tour to Europe, that really disboggles my mind because. If you take a look at the Beatles' success worldwide, yeah. solo yeah. careers, they had more success in the United States than anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, you take a look, and we get feedback, especially from 
if you're watching, David Jackson, who is always pointing out how, how the Beatles solo careers did in the UK and how um, Ringo was a has-been by the time Goodnight Vienna came out. And certainly, you know, people were thinking that way about George by probably that time after living in the material world or Dark Horse, his albums really didn't do that well, but they still did fairly well here in the United States. All of George's albums, even Dark Horse and Extra Texture went top 10. So I'm just surprised that you would say that, how you'd think he'd be more received in Europe as opposed to the United States. Well, I mean, Paul's first tour was in Europe with Wings when he wanted to warm them up before, you know, he brings them to America to do these huge, these huge sellout tours. So uh, just something that's a bit out there, a bit more experimental, that's a bit more, this isn't, you know, these aren't the great hits. We're trying something new here with progression with music. I think European audiences would have been a bit more open to it. But of course, they wouldn't have sold like they did over in the US. All right. Well, um, there's one thing I wanted to mention here, and mm -hmm. I found this to be, I, I, I'm really glad that you wrote this. Not that I, I don't totally agree with this, but I'm going to read what you said in, one, in um, one of your chapters here. This follows the whole My Sweet Lord lawsuit. Mm -hmm. You wrote, had the Beatles encouraged Harrison to write tunes from the beginning of their career, giving him the chance to match Lennon and McCartney on every record. Perhaps Harrison's interest in spiritual rock, and more importantly, an escape from his growing resentment of the band, would not have been as feverish as it would manifest itself in 1970. Then again, the world would have been robbed of My Sweet Lord, a hymn that blew even the most hardened of religious skeptics, Lenin included, away, from, away with its sincerity. From great anger came a work of tremendous beauty, and though the tune may not have been original, the lyric and sentiment definitely were. And although it took a certain amount of courage to denounce the sanctity of religion in the 1970s, it was arguably harder to make a case for it, especially one with such a dazzling sound. The song has outlived both its writer and co-producer and will likely continue to inspire songwriters long after you and I have completed our earthly journeys. For Harrison, the humiliation was temporary, but the legacy of the song is eternal. I love the way that's ended there. But first of all, <laughs> about, about My Sweet Lord, because it's a great song and it's a great record. And yeah. I think it's one of the greatest hits that any of the, the solo Beatles have had. But, but to say from the very beginning that had John and Paul encouraged him, I don't think that because John and Paul had already been writing for quite a while. Yeah. George was not the prolific writer early on from Don't Bother Me, you know, in the early years, he only wrote one or two songs a year up until 1965. Even if he encouraged George, they never, he never would have written as much as John and Paul or on the level as John and Paul. He's still a few years behind them. They already had several years under their belt as songwriters. So don't get me wrong. I think one of the biggest mistakes the Beatles ever made was not letting was not recording more Harrison songs towards the end. But in the early years, he wasn't writing that much at all. He was just well, learning how to write. Mm -hmm. uh, well, there is that walk when John and Paul took where they made the decision, do we go Lennon McCartney or would you go Lennon McCartney Harrison? And they decide we're doing Lennon McCartney. 
So, I mean, why couldn't they have said, no, there's three of us. Why don't the three of us write together and the three of us and then literally come back to George and say, come on, we're going to write a song together right now instead of it. So the three of them as teenage boys in Liverpool start writing together. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul has said George didn't show an interest, but maybe he could have uh, could have said, come on, George, let's write a song together. I don't know if he ever actually did that. It was a as you uh, as you read out, it's all musing and hypothetical. I, I think George actually needed to be that. I think he needed to be that sort of that silent one, the one, the the dark horse, as he saw himself, the one that, that that people didn't recognize as this great talent to have something as incredible as the All Things Must Pass album. I think he needed that that competitive spark, which which is ironic for such a deeply spiritual album. That's a good point. You just don't know what would have happened if it was a trio as songwriters. How much would George have contributed as a songwriter to what John and Paul were writing? Or maybe even songs that George wrote, how much would John and Paul try to contribute to it? It's yeah, kind and of interesting you, in that regard. And, and you see the enthusiasm that, in, you know, in that Great Living the Material World documentary, it was why I think he was writing letters to back home or whatever. And you see the enthusiasm and just in the letter of when he found out that he was going to, you know, when they, they were going to go live and he was going to get to sing just as many songs as as, as John and, and, and Paul were going to sing live, I think these were in what the Cavern days or whatever, uh, or I think Brian Epstein came up with this, this that for him to be, you know, out there just as much as the other two. I mean, if, if, if that was, if someone was there, like Ken was saying to maybe say, hey, why don't you come on in here and, and write with us? I think maybe his attitude towards that may have changed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Paul did later admit, okay, and I love her, the main hook is effectively George, but why didn't he credit that to George in 1964? Right. Why can't that be Lennon McCartney Harrison? Because the thing right. that everyone remembers, ding, 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 is George's hook. Yeah. I mean, that, you know how that, many times you could apply that in the Beatles catalog? Yeah, yeah, with different, different Beatles. They were not, only, there. not only that, but George Martin's contributions. Right. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just the idea to speed up, please, please me made all the difference in the world. Yeah. Why shouldn't he get a songwriting credit? You know, I think he should. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that's not the way things were done. Uh, you yeah. know, in my life, even in my life, I mean, it's a lot. George Martin could go endlessly with. Uh, yeah, and not only that, yeah, but you, you were trying to say you you think that because John and Paul held George back, that's what led to him seeking a spiritual you know, knowledge, because it was also, he he didn't get enough enjoyment, enough fulfillment from all the commercial success of the Beatles. That's why he turned that way. But you think it's more because John and Paul held him back? No, it's not so much John and Paul. He was, as in, he was trying to find his own way that he would find a way that wasn't John or Paul, and he found it in spiritualism. That happened, it happened to, co it was a happy coincidence that he found it is something he's he's enjoying in his spare time. This is way a way he can write that's not you know Lenz as, as acerbic as Lenin or as or as whimsical as McCartney. It's pure Harrison, which must have been. In, it was Brandon Flowers of the Killers who pointed out how daunting is that? You're in the band with the two best songwriters in the world, and you still find your own lyrical voice. But that probably is what he needed to be in the band with the two best and say how can I be? How can I match this? Or how can I be? How can I make my own distinctive voice? And he, and he found it in spirituality. But he also found it in his music. I mean, even through yeah. the beginning, Don't Bother Me doesn't sound like the other Lennon McCartney song. Mm, yeah. Maybe not. 
It's also not very good, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, I love it. Talking to me. <laughs> and, uh, and don't forget the Indians, obviously. I mean, yeah. In Our Light and uh, Love You Too and all those yeah. kind of songs. Yeah, I think I think it's great that George had his own kind of thing, his own yeah. identity, personality, music-wise. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Stands out, yeah. Beatles. But I also would disagree about um, what you had to say about George as a singer. No, he's not as strong vocally as John and Paul, but he had his voice that matched his own music. You know, and I yeah. think that's really important in a way because you take any George Harrison song like. For example, My Sweet Lord, I can't picture John singing it. I can't picture Paul singing it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's far more effective the way George, the way he sings the song, matches whatever he's trying to convey in the music. He's feeling, especially the spiritual yeah. stuff. And he certainly, I will agree with you about it as a background singer because he doesn't get nearly the credit that he deserves for his harmony yeah. work. Beatles. Right. Very often, if you're yes. doing three part harmony, what George did, like the middle part, is the most difficult part to sing. Yeah. So he deserves a lot of credit in that regard. And then there's also his guitar playing, which is a whole other thing. But uh, yeah, just out of curiosity, because I know you, you just said extra texture is your favorite, even above all things must pass. Um, I, I, th I think all things must pass is the best, but my personal favorite is extra texture. Okay. Oh. Oh, so if you were to, to rate, I know that you you didn't like 33 and a third, but if you were to rate. And I, and I want to talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to rate his entire catalog, let's go beyond the 70s here, up to Brainwash, studio albums. Would you say which which is your least favorite up to your favorite? Could you do that? Yeah, sure. Top of your head? So, yeah, I can do that right now. Um, oh, boy. So Cloud, Nine, Cloud Nine is the least favorite. I would then go uh, somewhere in England because I because it uh, it's it's a mess of a it's a mess of an album both in the original and the and the and the way that the production had it. Thirty three goes next. Then we have Gone Tropo because although it's not although it's not brilliant, it's still whimsical and fun. And then we're gonna go to Dark Horse. Then we're going to go to, I would say, George Harrison. Then I would say we have Material World. Then we have Brainwashed. Then we have Extra Texture. And then we have Must Pass. Have I missed any albums? I think you got them. I think you got them. I, I thought you were going to miss Forget Brainwashed, but then you came out with it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Brainwashed always tends to get overlooked a lot. I, I tend to forget it. I like it. I like mm -hmm. the album. I wrote it. I actually have a piece on culture sonar calling it saying, saying it's one of his yeah. best. Yep, I saw that. Yeah, I think it's gotten better with age. I really do. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I just want to add that I enjoy having someone like you on my channel and, and here really because I like hearing different opinions, even if I don't agree with them. And it's really important to hear what younger people have to say. You know, well, their ears may not match what we're hearing. Right. So right. People are discovering, especially the indie crowd, a lot of early McCartney stuff now that they dig, or the, the DIY stuff from McCartney. You know, it's just as important to hear what young people have to say about old organs. So that is important whether I agree with you or not. 
<laughs> but, um, but to respect each other's opinion, but yeah, hey, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I've had a, a couple of questions, and, and one of them does have to do with 33 and a third, so we can, we can get into that. But I, I wanted to uh mention, you know, I've, I've been getting a bit more into uh, Dark Horse lately, the, the album, uh, because it's, it wasn't one that was a favorite uh, of mine, but, uh, but it's, you know, I've really grown to appreciate it more. And um, I, I like how you uh, put this, uh, you know, made me think about it even more. Uh, Dark Horse is an album of pain, pathos, and purging violence. Um, and you call it um, you know, in some ways, this was his plastic Ono band, his blood on the tracks, his great expression of agony in a decade that showed little of the 1960s idealism. Um, and uh, I, I wonder if you could expand a bit about, you know, why, you know, you, you liken it to his plastic Ono band. I just think that's a, that's a, a very interesting comparison. Well, there's a very good episode I appeared on with Ken Michaels. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so I think it, I, because some of it is very confessional, so sad, simply shady. He's uh, so sad. He's, you know, addressing his breakdown with his marriage on simply shady. He's hinting at his, at his alcoholism. Uh, there's the there's that lyric to old, old Clapper. She's gone with old Clapper. Him embracing the fact that the media knows that his wife has run off with another man. Uh, there, uh, there, there's a lot of you know very very interesting stuff there, I mean, and some and some of it is very hopeful. At the same time, you've got Ding Dong and Maya Love, and that counters you know the angrier parts of the album. Uh, I mean, some of the guitar playing is just so ferocious. I love it. Like I going back to simply shady. I just love the blues yeah. hooks and yeah, yeah. you know barreling it all is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I and I think, you know, you made me think about it, that that may have been one of the reasons why I was initially, you know, that I didn't like it, because it is, no pun intended, dark. I mean, <laughs> it is. A, yeah, no, it is. It, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is. But, you know, the more I've listened to it, you know, the more I've appreciated and and uh, and going back to the tour for a second, you you also so what you said made me rethink the tour because it, you know, it is you know, typically has been so, you know, absolutely trash, you know, it, it was in the press, obviously, because of his voice. Um, but I like how you, you know, you phrased it, um, how you said, um, here, let me see if I can find the quote here. Here it is. Um, you know, that he, the way he was changing, you know, we mentioned earlier about changing some of the lyrics and, and of course, how he brought Ravi Shankar in. Uh, he, you said he was, he told an audience in Vancouver, prepared to die for Indian music, but not for rock and roll. And he highlighted the importance of change in the aforementioned uh, press conference, if I mentioned a previous one. The Beatles were yesterday's music. Harrison expected everyone, including himself, to live in the present. Uh, and I thought that was a, a, you know, very interesting thing. And it, it sounds like, you know, you talk about how, how dark, the Dark Horse Tour was kind of a personal and professional transformation for him. Could you say, a, you know, a little bit more about that? You know, why, why you think we should think of dark, the Dark Horse Tour as a bit more than just 
the dark H O A R S E tour. Well, I mean, it was his return to the live stages. It was him, it, him addressing the fact that he was in fact a divorced man. That his lieutenant had walked off with his woman in cavalier terms. Uh, the, and this was him, you know, embracing it through music and trying to and doing it to what in a style that excited him much more than the conventions of pop. And uh, you know, he wasn't kowtowing to you know to to stadium rock, and he wasn't kowtowing to 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 what arena 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 regulations he was doing what what meant what mattered to him and what what get got him going so it was it was very personal it was very aching it was very intricate but it, all, it wasn't very successful and some of it didn't didn't hit off and some of it was a bit too haughty so especially the way that he uh, he berated the audiences who just wanted to have a good time that, that might have been his finest hour but uh, but uh, but at least what we could say about George is at all times he was honest and he, he could never do anything that didn't mean something to him except perhaps for Cloud Nine where he just wanted the cash. <laughs> oh please! <laughs> was was his issues with handmade films or around with the making of uh, Cloud Nine or was that after Cloud Nine? A little after. A little after. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's get to three, three and a third. <laughs> gentlemen yeah. um and you know we can kick it off you you mentioned at the beginning of this show that you felt cloud nine you know we talked about identity um uh, that you know how i said this is a major theme of this book about him in this decade trying to you know wrestle with his past identity and forming a new one and you said that you felt 33 and a third lacked you know an identity uh, can you say a little bit more about that? We'll kick it off there. It's just a collection of pop songs, really, when you listen to it. It's just a collection of, I mean, the one song that I really dig on that album is this song, because it's, you know, it's like, it's lacerating and just showing how ridiculous the whole court case was. And it, it, in his eyes, it was just stupid. This wasn't, you know, a war. This wasn't a hate crime. It was a, it was a pop song. It was a rock song. And, and, you're, and you're bringing him to court over this. But the rest, you know, flits just from, I mean, True Love's okay. It's quite nice. Uh, Cracker Palace, I don't think it's very good. I, I, and, I, and, I, and I will get hate mail for that. Uh, <laughs> What's your address? <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think it has a thematic hook the way the rest of them do. And I don't think he was pushing himself as an artist as he had been. Like he's pushing himself as a musician on both Dark Horse and Extra Texture. I just don't think he's pushing himself to that level on on thirty three, and he's not push. And he's not. He's not. He's he hasn't found his new narrative voice the way he has on George Harrison, which is him as a father. Gentlemen, well, how about starting out with Olivia? I mean, is he pretty much just starting to really get? Uh... Yeah. Involved with Olivia around that time, or am I getting my years wrong around the time thirty-three and a third? Is, that, is it dark-haired ladies on that, or dark? Uh, my dark, my no, dark lady. That's later. That's on George Harrison. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, I thought maybe I, I thought maybe around seventy-six ish or so, you know. But uh, uh, you know. You say there's more negatives than positives on the album, and that's you know I I mean I don't agree with that, 
but that's interesting to, to hear. And you you made your stance clear when you now when you just said that you know he's like just doing it maybe to have like a lot of pop songs on there. There were a lot of pop songs. Yeah. Uh, I happen to love Cracker Box Palace. You said in the book uh, it's you know, better remembered for its accompanying video. And while I love the video, I would say the same thing about this song. I'm not a big this song fan, uh, but I think the video. Uh, and I do appreciate what he was trying to say, though. He's trying to talk about the court case. So at least he's got something to say, you know, a point to make with the song. But um, I know you said something like see yourself. I think you called that typically caustic fodder. And what I found very interesting, and I hope I got this right, uh, with Woman Don't You Cry For Me, you said it offers listeners the shot in the arm the album needs after such a long interlude of uninteresting material. And I agree, except the one problem. It's the first song on the album. So that <laughs> long interlude of uninteresting material for me you're talking about was extra texture. <laughs> so I do, so I do agree. I agree. That's the most, I agree. Oh man! But, uh, you know, I just I just thought that would be a, an interesting little shot. You know, yeah. I, I so yeah, I, I don't think I, it's. Go ahead. I, go ahead. I just think it's no, a no. diverse. Uh, I mean, I love the different musical, you know, genre. I mean, there's just quite a few music different, different genres of music on this album, which I think what what makes it interesting. In uh, myself, I mean, I, you know, I don't hear necessarily hear, you know, pop songs on, on this. I mean, sure. I mean, yeah, there's, there's you know, we've got this song in, in Cracker Box Palace, but, um, you know, Pure Smokey, I think, is one of his, you know, was, is a fantastic track. And I've always said that Beautiful Girl, uh, I think, is one of his greatest ballads, uh, you know. So I, um, you know, and Woman Don't You Cry For Me, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a terrific you know, terrific yeah. track, you know, uh, you know, learning how to love you is, is great too. Uh, you know, so I just hear a lot of diversity in, in, in this album and it just shows his range too. I mean, as we all dear know, one. how about dear yeah, one? Yeah. Yeah. Dear yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, that's what I get from this album is just, you know, his range and, you know, and I, and I think lyrically it's got some good, nice stuff on here as well. I really okay. think it, it represented a growth for him too. And we've talked about how I certainly can hear more of a, jazz influence in his music going from Far East Man into 33 and a third and that yeah. Tom Scott influence on the album or whatever but certainly when you hear something like Pure Smokey or Learning How to Love You it really has a light jazz feel to it which I think was different for George at the time and yeah you do have the pop you've got this song in Cracker Box Palace it's it's what you value is very poppy and uh, Woman, Don't You Cry For Me. I tell you one thing about that song is that it's very interesting to hear the evolution of that song. Hmm. It dates back to All Things Was Past. And it even had like a like a hillbilly. Huh. <laughs> and here it's like out and out R&B. Right. On uh, 33 and a third. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, that there's definite growth in him as an artist. And also, I think it was very important for him at the time because he does have that reputation of being very serious, very moody. And let's see the comical side of George Harrison. Let's make fun of the My Sweet Lord lawsuit right. and Cracker Box Palace and showing all the, the strange characters around his mansion there and uh, popping out of the baby pram. And so was, I think that was a good thing 
for him at the time to give the public a, a lighter, you know, more fun image of who George Harrison was. There's more to him than just this serious guy. You know, that's one of the things I think I even said this in our interview, but I, I kind of equate Paul Simon the same way. Paul Simon can be a very serious yeah. person, very, very moody at times. And then he's got a, the greatest sense of humor. <laughs> Just watching him on Saturday Night Live with all the comedy sketches he does. So I think there's those two sides of George. And I think that the, the lighter, more comical side came through in 33 and a third. Among other things, you still have the spiritual. You still have Dear One. Yeah. Um, and True Love was a great arrangement. The, the Cold Quarter song. Um, so I, I think it's a solid album. I think 33 and a third and George Harrison are pretty much equal in my my opinion. He was the best albums in Paul's uh, in George's. Yeah, so, and and actually, yeah, that was a that was a, a question I had because I've I've always kind of considered them like bookends. Uh, yeah, 33 and a third and George Harrison. And you mentioned what are you talking about bookends. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Oh, it's a honeymooners reference. Folks. I know. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, but anyway, you know, I I always you know considered them bookends, uh, right. actually. And um, and you mentioned in your book that you know you think George Harrison, which I also love, uh, is the more mature album. Um, yeah. And so why, you know, can you expand upon that? Sure. Why why you think that's more mature than thirty three and a third? Because he's inner, he's letting out his inner child, which only came out because of his of of being a dad. Like, would he have written something as you know frothy as "Blow Away" if he wasn't you know carrying a little infant in his hand? I don't know. I don't think so. He's going into that kind of gooey, kind of um, beautiful boy era of like John Lennon's music, which John Lennon would have on the Double Fantasy album. Um, it's all you know, a bit nicer, a bit softer. What I don't like about his ver about his remake of Not Guilty is it's lost its edge. I, I don't think he should have recorded that. I mean, I mean, when you hear the people's rendition, it's nasty. It's almost punk-like. We don't have that on the second one. It's just. A bit that, I heard I heard George's version on uh, George Harrison first before I'd ever heard the Beatles one. Oh, so wow. I had a soft spot for it. Uh, <laughs> you know, edgy is a good thing, but the Beatles didn't fully develop Not Guilty when they were working on it. Kept hearing that riff over and over and over, da -da 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 -da, da -da -da -da, over and over, and you know, killer riff. Far more, it was more developed than George did it. More laid back. Maybe it should have been a combination of the two. Yeah, yeah. I but so. um, I like what George did with it. Again, light jazzy feel. Not guilty. Mm -hmm. Maybe. He's also let his inner driver with, you know, faster and just, you know, exploring parts of himself. I mean, he's, he's celebrating, you know, I mean, Olivia on a few of the tracks and there's, you know, soft-hearted soft Hannah, yeah. which is about holidays, what you enjoy with your family. So there's this, he has kind of remolded himself. He was in a very, he was in a wonderful spiritual plane. His father had recently passed away. His son had arrived and he was now with his soulmate, which of course was Olivia and she is still his soulmate. She very much is still uh, the custodian of his, of his estate and she represents him on, on everything in life and I think that's the album where he's introducing her to the to the narrative she's she, she's now kind of she's now his Linda or his Yoko he's never quite had a woman of that stature yet uh, Patty pa Patty Boyd was wonderful but she was always in behind the scenes and there's some dispute whether or not something is actually about her 
It's, it's something uh, George with the thorny on that issue. Yeah, George denied it in one issue, I do. Yeah. 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 Yeah, interesting. On the David Wig, Wig interviews, he sounded like maybe he thinks it was, you know, on that record, the David Wig interview. Interesting. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, there are many reasons I love 33 and a third. I mean, another is, I you know, I, I love how it explores R&B and, you know, you guys know how I feel about R&B. Um, and, um, and I do think, though, it's also, as I said, it's as interesting as I've just always felt like they were like you know 33 and a third george harrison were like you know they could have been like sequels and 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 that's that 33 and a third was kind of the beginning of this mature period because i agree that that you know that that later part of the 70s was definitely you you hear it in in the music how he was reaching this more you know uh, contented period of his life not perfect <clears throat> excuse me but but more uh you know contented as you said becoming a father marrying olivia i mean you know you you definitely hear it from say extra texture where i mean to to me tired of midnight blue says it all like what he was going through at the time i mean you know it's it's uh you know it's an it's an interesting um you know contrast so um but uh but yeah i mean it's it as ken said it's it's interesting you know to hear uh different perspectives on on these albums you know and, and fresh perspectives and uh you know how we hear you know we hear different albums in in you know in new ways so it's really it's great to hear them um we did a show on talk more talk on the greatest one two punches yeah and I think many of us took 33 and a third and George Harrison back to back. Yes, we yeah. did. That's okay. right. Yep, we did. That's right. Yep. So yeah. yeah. Love love those albums. Um any other uh questions that anybody wants to uh well on more? Just one thing I'll bring up for I can for a minute. And again, this is another John Lennon thing that I wanted to uh, find out what you think. You were talking about uh when John Paul and George were going to sign the papers to dissolve the Beatles and they're going to go to New York. And of course we know John didn't go, didn't go. He did it later on, you know, yeah. at a later time. Uh, but you, you said in the book, it says the two men, uh, meaning uh, Paul and George, the two men were humble enough to put their differences aside for the sake of their shared history. Uh, together, McCartney and Harrison exemplified maturity, reverence, and respect. Traits Lennon showed himself to be sorely lacking by virtue of his absence. Now, I, I can go along with that. I mean, I think you know, maybe he should have been there. But this here's where it's un This is just for fun I'm doing this. I'm asking you this question on a tangent now for, for fun. And along those lines, what do you think of Paul McCartney's non-show at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988 uh, for business reasons but he didn't show. Deeply mature. It was a stupid, a stupidity of the highest order. I mean, what, what was he thinking? Yeah, so the same thing. I, I know this is a tit for tat kind of thing, <laughs> but I'm just, I was just wondering because I always thought, man, you know, he really deprived himself out of a great time, a great experience. And I don't think there would have been anything hypocritical about it had he shown up. No, you know. No, 
I mean, I, I have been told by someone that it may have been because of Jan Wenner's presence at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that that might have been the reason why Paul didn't show up at, at the event. Oh. But if, even if it's that, that's just petty. I mean, the world is clamoring for a Beatles reunion and there's three of you here. Why not give it to them and just rock out to I saw her standing there. It would have been amazing. Yeah. 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 I agree. <clears throat> Good. Yeah. Yeah, um, do you notice a difference in, I, I don't know how to word this, whatever, but do you think um, George is more comfortable being a contributor than a leader? Um, you know, he's, maybe kind of see a little difference in him with the, the concert for Bangladesh. I didn't get to see that. Ken, you got to see the, uh, the, the Dark Horse tour. Um, but, I mean, do you, do you think he's more comfortable being with a group of musicians than he is being out on his own? I think he, I think his, his ideal idea of a band was the band, even though, ironically, they were Robbie Robertson's backing band. But that idea, you know, Levon can sing one song and then Levon can play mandolin while Richard Manuel can sing this song or right. Rick Danko can go for this instrument and sing harmony and that they're all doing it for the betterment of the music. I think he tried to instill that with the traveling, traveling Wilburys, which is, you know, five guys, you know, trying right. to do, trying to melt their influences for the betterment of the music. And I think they got it pretty well in the first album, not so much in the second Traveling Wilburys, or, or is it the third Traveling Wilburys? Right. <laughs> Yeah. I was going to say there's two sides to George there because part of him wants to be part of a band. Right. Said, um, at the, the time of the Traveling Wilburys, he found that to be more fun than to make a solo album. Yeah. So, you know, he loved being in the Beatles, loved the camaraderie within the Beatles. He liked contributing in his own way within the Beatles. At the same time, he was frustrated not being acknowledged as much and not being given as many songs. At the same time, he also wanted to put out solo music, right. you know, but he still loved the idea of being in a band at the same time and doing solo stuff. But I think when, when the burden is not all on him, mm -hmm. I think he appreciates that more. Right. That's why something like the concert for Bangladesh or the 74 tour, he had lots of friends. Right. Yeah. Tour with him and it wouldn't just be him. You know, and even in the, the live in Japan tour, he still had to rely on Eric Clapton's band, although right. songs, but Eric had a four songs set in there. But yeah, there's there's two sides to him. Right. He is complex. I mean he just yeah, I mean you when you look at his album credits, I mean you just see a treasure trove of musicians on these on these albums and you just you know, he just loved to surround himself with, with great musicians. And, you know, you would never see, you know, George doing a, you know, a, you know, do it yourself album like McCartney would, would do from time to time or, or a very kind of like stripped down, you know, album like maybe band or uh, Estagono band uh, was. I mean, it's just always, yeah, about the song. It's just you know, interesting to, to think maybe, you know, what he could have done if it you know was just like, you know him and maybe a percussionist or something like that you know yeah uh, so he, he didn't want a denny lane he wanted like a full band right all right well um i i think this is a 
great way to wrap this up. I, I really like how you you uh, phrased this, Owen. Um, you know, how you said, uh, kind of summarized his progression, um, uh, George Harrison's progression, said, um, in a mere 10 years, he'd shown he was something much greater than the grumpy guitarist who had stormed out of rehearsals during the Beatles' proposed return to the stage. Uh, instead, he fashioned a new image for himself, and one that was based entirely on the waves of time consider it in his nature as both a musician and person. Uh, completing the triumvirate was his role as a father, and he was happy to impart knowledge to the child who now holds the key to his life's work. He favored process over product and enjoyed watching the seeds grow into something grander, no matter how long lasting or influential the result was. I, I just, <laughs> I just love that. I just think that really shows uh, his his growth. And uh, so one last uh, question that I always ask authors, what do you want the reader to walk away with after reading this book? Well, I hope to give an overview of him as a person. Um, so my title for while I was writing it as a big Joyce fan is the guitar of the guitarist, a solo Beatle. Rather, instead of the portrait of the artist as a young man. Uh, so the, just to see how, I mean, how he progressed, how he developed, what we haven't really mentioned is by the end of the 70s, he's one of the, one of the most promising film producers uh, in, in Britain. He basically resurrected the British film industry and he produces two of the British films of, in 1979. One is The Life of Brian and the other is The Long Good Friday. And from then on, it's falls into handmade films and that's where, where he busies himself in the 80s. And that's probably his best work. It's producing all these amazing films like Mona Lisa with Nail and I. And it just, ever it seemed to be that he was a man of his principles. And yes, occasionally they didn't work out as we saw on the Dark Horse tour or, I mean, or some of his songs weren't as good, but he stuck by his principles and it helped him both as an artist and more importantly as a person. And I, if I can... You, you, you say that, uh, Owen, I was going to, believe it or not, I was going to try to squeeze the question in and say, well, what about writing a book on the 80s of George? I'd like to see you try to make a claim for what I heard you had said before, that The Handmade Films was probably his greatest achievement in the 80s. I beg to differ, but uh, there were a few good films in there. I still think the Cloud Nine, the Traveling Wilburys, and, you know, Cheer Down and Poor little girl and cockamamie business. Those, I, I for me, uh, more you know, to me as a fan, I guess more of a success. But but handmade films is an important part of of well, his career, part, and but, uh, and uh, and particularly in in British film. Um, and uh, and I think that would be uh, good. And of course, there is that documentary, yeah, uh, that studio. accidental studio, yeah, which, uh, which yeah, is that, yeah. which is really interesting. But uh, but yeah. I mean, I, I think that would be an interesting uh, book. And yeah, pr I mean, probably, as you said, for, for you know, for length, you know, you could go into, th that's a book unto itself, right? So that would, uh, yeah, well, that, that may, be, uh, may be a book of George Harrison in the 80s and, and be able to get into, uh, yeah, because you could do Traveling Wilburys, um, Cloud Nine, Gone Tropo, and, um, and the films, so. There you go. Uh, oh, and would that. you say, 
would you say that Gontrapo? I think you did. So you listed the albums. Gontrapo is probably your your favorite album of the eighties, George. Yeah. I, yes. I I don't think it's a masterpiece, but it's a bit more fun and it's a bit more clear headed. It's it's not she's the other two albums. And we did a, a another listen episode on Gontrapo, yeah, yes, and we, we actually. You know, we we actually said it. You know, was better than yeah was initially given credit for for sure. Can we yeah. do another another listen of Gontrapo? Yeah, there you go. I have another <laughs> another Back another listen. listen. There you go. There you go. But uh, anyway, well, the book is George Harrison in the 1970s, and uh, I think it's as I said, an important look at this absolutely transformational decade uh, in George Harrison's life, uh, professionally and personally. Uh, do check it out. It will inspire conversation. Uh, and, uh, and again, it's, a, it's just a really uh, fascinating look at, at this crucial decade. So uh, Owen, thank you so much for being with us and, uh, and, I, <laughs> and uh, yep, showing off some uh, albums there. And uh, I, I hope we, we weren't too, uh, <laughs> too hard yeah, on you and some, some of those. I think uh, I was pretty careful. <laughs> yes, you were, you were. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Owen, for playing along. Thank you, know, you Mr. Came, came to answer the questions. I appreciate it. You know, it really just and it really it inspires some great conversation and uh you know we really enjoyed it and and uh you know definitely anytime you want to come back you know okay. we'd love it absolutely you know keep my diary all right <laughs> excellent uh so this is the time where we you know share where you you know you can find us anything that's coming up so uh so owen what uh where where can people find you follow you uh your your appearances your articles all that stuff oh god that's a good one well if you just type in my name uh into muckrack i'm probably best known for writing for far out magazine but um i'm on twitter and and i have a i have a wordpress you can contact me on my wordpress all right, so just uh, so just uh, enter Owen Lang and, and uh, Google it, and you'll find. It. And I can put um, any links you want in the in the description of the video. So just yeah, you can send me those, and I'll be happy to put those in. So great. Okay. Um, so uh, Tom, what's uh, what's going on with you? Well, let's see here. Uh, well, Andy was just at the Fest for Beatles fans well as our as our own kiddo tool and then i think ken you made a uh, virtual appearance uh at the fest didn't you um so and andy was uh hosting all the the panels uh that he was on on our youtube channel two legs a paul mccartney podcast right before this interview we had another we had a chat with uh author john blaney who's been writing these the, the great uh, the songs uh he was singing uh books which is a great four volume set um, about all the releases and uh, of Paul's uh, catalog, and uh, we may have convinced him to do a part five. Uh, hopefully, that'll that'll, wow. that'll happen. But he, you know, he also did a John version, uh, 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 you know, uh, of of this. He did a George version uh, as well. Uh, so great guy, good author, and uh, we had a lot of fun talking with him. So that'll be up the following Saturday. Um, or if you want to call it this Saturday, if you're one of those that thinks Sunday is the beginning of the week or not on the census <laughs> on the calendar. <laughs> um, so that's coming up and uh, uh, 
you know, we have a, a, an idea for, for shows with, uh, with Owen here in the future as well. So uh, be on the lookout for that. So, yeah, you know, more to come. Excellent. All right, Joe, how about you? What's going on with your channel? Well, my channel being Mean Mr. Mayo here on YouTube, if you want to subscribe. Also, I have a movie channel called Mayo After Dark. Uh, on the Mean Mr. Mayo channel, uh, I did a, a new Beatles Finds video. You got to go back a few videos, but uh, some interesting stuff on there. And also, I did a, a video, a short video, just talking about this dubious news item that the uh, artist known as Drake supposedly has <laughs> beat the Beatles record again or something like that. And why I think that's a lot of bogus uh, nonsense and not on the same playing field. It's different, different uh, posts posts not the same so <laughs> check it out all right ken you always have a lot going on so what uh, update us what are you up to uh well first of all on my youtube channel ken michaels radio um if you want to catch more of owen <laughs> a conversation on the book prior to this so if this is not enough for you if you can't get your fill check out <laughs> michaels radio and in fact a few weeks ago, we did another show defending We All Stand Together and Mary Had a Little Lamb as two songs that are, you know, kind of reviled by the press. I listened to that show during my morning walk the other day, by the way. Yeah. I got a lot to say about that, too. Oh, what you said about Mary Had a Little Lamb. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition to that, Dylan Seavey made another appearance on my channel. Dylan is just an incredible speaker when it comes to the Beatles. I came to know him through Two Legs, through Tom and Andy, and he did a Fab Five show in which he lists five albums, one Beatles, one from each solo Beatle that are his go-to albums for today. Just his insights are fascinating. And uh, as one person wrote in in one of my shows uh, with Dylan, boy, that guy can talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... It's, if he's the perfect person to yeah. have occasionally if he's not at a loss for words no. so, um it's always interesting to hear and there's another case he's 30 years old Owen's about to be 30 how do young people feel about the beatles the right. group of the solo careers you want to hear things from their perspective and he's also a musician he plays guitar and drums and he hears things that a lot of us wouldn't hear especially as a drummer we did a whole show on ringo too earlier so um that's on my uh youtube channel Ken Michaels Radio. Things we said today, my other podcast, we just did a show for Revolver. As, um, it just celebrated its 56th anniversary. And uh, we will have another show coming next week where we're going to be talking about Lennon and McCartney. Similarities and differences between the two of them, musically and as people. So that's on Things We Said Today, which you can catch on YouTube and all the audio outlets out there just like you can with talk more talk my website kenmichaelsradio.com always has weekly beatles trivia and now you can win a copy of the book lennon's oh, yes. mobster and the lawyer by jay bergen who was oh. lennon's defense attorney in that case against morris levy with the you can't catch me uh lifting a line from chuck berry song using it and come together learn about everything that went on in the courtroom including actual transcripts of what john said in the courtroom and jay has signed well not my copy he signed the copies that i'm giving away on my uh on my website 
of this book. You can win that as part of my Beatles trivia at kenmichaelsradio.com. And as always, there's my radio show, Every Little Thing, which is on over 50 radio stations. Go to my website, look at the page for Every Little Thing. It lists all the radio stations, broadcast times, and where you can actually go to the websites for each station and stream the show. And um, I think that's everything. Did I get it all? Yes, I did. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, first of all, let me just briefly mention where you can find us. Um, you can find us, of course, right on this channel you're watching. And please subscribe. Uh, we have, uh, we're, we're getting new subscribers every day. We thank you very much. And uh, please tell your friends. Uh, and uh, we thank you all for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. Um, and uh, you can, of course, find us on any uh, you know, a, a podcasting platform you can think of. Uh, we're, we're pretty much uh, everywhere, so you can listen to us there. Um, you can find us on Twitter at TalkMoreTalk1, the number one. You can email us at TalkMoreSoloTalk at gmail.com if you have any ideas about uh, future topics you'd like us to uh, consider. Uh, and, of course, we always uh, welcome feedback. Um, and uh, you can also find us on Facebook. Uh, just look up Talk More Talk. We are always uh, posting, you know, things we're up to, news, all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, and of course, you can find us on the web at talkmoretalk.com. Um, and oh, and and uh, our friend Beetle Ed runs our shows on uh, his site fab4radio.com. Uh, so do check him out. And uh, thanks to him for all of his support. He's a great guy. Um, so uh, as for what I'm up to, uh, my classes are coming up very soon. Uh, starting September 15th, um, I am teaching part one of my class, the Roots of Rock and Roll. I'm really excited about it. Um, so spots are filling up fast, uh, as I understand. So if you're going to uh, sign up, you might want to do it now. So, uh, you know, start just, uh, you can sign up. Um, I'll have the links up again on my Facebook page, on all the uh, Talk More Talk Facebook page. Um, and uh, then part two doesn't start till December, but, uh, but part one is uh, starting up in just a few weeks. So I'm working on it as we speak. So, uh, you know, I hope, uh, hope to see you there. Uh, and also our panel that we did at the Fest for Beatles fans, the special Whack Our Brains edition will be up very soon. And uh, some of the other panels that I was on there, you can check out actually on the Two Likes channel. And, uh, and I think when they was fab will be up and there will be some extra footage uh, on this channel as well. So I, I've got some real editing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so be on the lookout for all of that stuff. And um, I think that's it. So uh, let's see. Uh, so uh, Owen, you, do you want to, you can unmute if you, uh, if you want. <laughs> I, I didn't know if you wanted to say something. Um, there you go. All right. So I think that's everything. So Owen, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. We really enjoyed this. This was a great conversation. Um, so for Joe, Ken, Tom, and Owen, this is Kiddo Tool saying, it's all up to what you value down to ah. where you are. <laughs>
Peace and love, everybody. Take care. Take care. Bye. What? <laughs>